the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Is it a positive thing that the number of Americans claiming to be born again has never been higher? And then we're joined by Michael Graham to talk about his new book, The Great Dechurching. You're listening to The Common Good. Happy Tuesday, friends. Welcome to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Aubrey Sampson. My name is Brian Fromm. It's so good to have you with us today on a Tuesday afternoon. Aubrey, happy Tuesday. How are Thank things? You. Things are grand on this Tuesday. It's no longer Are your longer kids back Monday. in school? No. <laughs> nope. I was driving nope. through Winfield nope. the other day, and it looked like they had just gone back, so I wondered if your kids went nope. with them. Thursday. So we're almost there. We're getting there. We're almost there. Hmm. It's a... Uh, it's it's they're still they're still at home, but we're getting there. I'm just gonna keep saying that till Thursday. <laughs> you sound wonderful about that. I love having my kids home in the summer. I actually do, and I love the like mornings that aren't quite as like oh, every yep, time I yep, get up yep. and go. But you know, every parent of every generation says this by this time. It's time. It's time for them to go back to school. We, as you know, I've said it over and over again, we just took our daughter back to college. And right before that, the other two went back to school. And we all, the kids, Carrie and I were like, we love summer, but it's time. Yeah. Like the, yeah. the schedule needs to normalize a little more. At Madeline is itching to get back to college. All of these things. Yeah. It was just time. It was just time. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean you don't love everybody. Just... In fact, we probably love each other more when we go our separate ways and then come back. Hey, speaking of, I won't reveal this, but I had a conversation with a teacher at uh, Wheaton Academy who has both of your kids. And no. I was like, ooh, give, nice. me the, give me the... Well, you can reveal if it was a good thing. If it was a good thing. Yes, yes. The, she said... They're great kids. Well, and I said, will you tell them I said hi? Now, in all fairness, <laughs> she's had my youngest daughter for less than a week now. Right, right. I wasn't going to bring that up. <laughs> but, but my youngest daughter's awesome, so I'm sure it's going well. Yeah. So, Yeah, that was fun. All right. Greg Laurie posted this the other day, and it really caught my eye, uh, because especially this first sentence, did you know that the number of Americans claiming to be born again has never been higher? This is shocking. Is fascinating? I don't know if I believe this. So... He then goes on to say this, though, yet a poll taken among so-called born-again Christians found that 28% believe that Jesus committed sin like other people while he lived on earth. And one-third of those claiming to be born again also believe that if someone is good enough, they can earn a place in heaven. So Greg Laurie goes on to say, maybe we just don't understand what it means to be born again. Yeah, this is a semantics issue, right? But a hugely important one. So let's unpack this a little bit. Uh, and then I love that Greg Laurie then um, he links to his Decision Magazine article, What Does It Mean to Be Born Again? Brilliant. Well Brilliant done, Greg Laurie. Greg Laurie. Uh, he is really good, by the way. And yeah. I know he's on our station. But yeah. uh, I read a thing the other day on Twitter, a Twitter thread about the top 10 uh evangelical YouTube pages. Is his one of them? Yeah, and they went through about how like they market it so well. Oh, like I when you see it, that. like wow. what how they do it. They do like the right amount of clip, like for the right amount of time. Yeah, he's cool. in like the top ten. Anyway. Good job. Good job, Greg Laurie. Uh 
it almost is a I, this is why I asked earlier, is it a good thing that the number of people claiming to be born again is higher than ever? I don't think it is if this is like the <laughs> underbelly of it. Right, like I, right. I think this might actually confuse the issue. Do you think um, the term born again is kind of an old school term? I do. Like, I don't know a lot of Christians amongst my peers that call themselves born again Christians. Right. Like, I feel like that is, I mean, I understand it's a biblical phrase coming from the story of Nicodemus. Mm -hmm. But um, I don't think people use it anymore, right? Like, so I this does feel like just kind of a semantics issue to me. And the interesting part, though, is why would people self-identify? Like, I'm trying to imagine who on a poll just clicks, yes, I'm a born-again Christian, mm-hmm. but then obviously is not a born-again Christian because of the other things that they said they believe. So I'm very That's confused interesting. about well, that. Well, I think... To alleviate your confusion, I think they would think they are. Okay. Like, I don't think they think it's uh, antithetical to be like, I'm a born-again Christian, but good people can get to heaven. I'm a born-again Christian, Jesus sinned. That's, I think, Greg Laurie's point. I think we've lost the common thread of what it means to be, you know, born again for this, but but just a Christian. Like, what it means... To be a Christian, and and I think that's Greg Laurie's point, is, huh, we're kind of missing things here. We are losing what it means. I would also add this. I think that the title Born Again, while biblical, so we want to hold, I agree with you, not not many younger people, especially like, if you're like, hey, what are you? I'm a born again Christian. That definitely happened the generation before us, but also I would say our generation. Like that language was used. I do feel like that language is, yes, less used, and I'll let people decide if that's a good thing or a bad thing. Uh, but I do want to hold out what you said. It is a – we get it out of the Bible. Yes. So it's yeah. not like, oh, those weird older people right. who created that term. No, Jesus created this term. Yeah, unless you're born again, you'll not enter the kingdom of right. God. So, yeah. And then he explains to Nicodemus yeah. what this means in John 3. Uh, and so we want to hold on to that. Uh, but with that said – there is now a political element to being born again. Mm. Think about the political things you read where it's like the X vote uh, uh, group of people voted for Trump uh-huh. with this percentage. Of, yeah. A lot of times it'll say evangelical, mm. but sometimes you look at that chart, it'll say born again Christians. Interesting. And it's like in our, so I also wonder if that's a little bit of what's going on here. People like, oh, I, I resonate I, with that group. I right, even with their political stances, not necessarily their theology. So therefore, I'm going to click that. Yep. Here's the other thing that I'm just sitting here. I, this is going to be a little strange, but <laughs> follow me for just a second. Is being born again about right beliefs? So he hmm. says the problem is they think Jesus sinned, which is a heresy. And the problem is that uh, what was the other one? Um, Anybody, like as long as you're a good person, as long as you're a good person. The Bible does not say that. Um, And yet, do we have to believe these things rightly and perfectly in order to be a born again Christian? I would suggest I was actually going to ask you that. What are the things that therefore make it up? Yeah, I would suggest that there are things you have to believe. Okay, 
but that we've probably made that list a lot longer, longer than like the Pharisees to used to do. Yeah, remember them? Yeah, but I, I go back to the fact that a lot of us church people would probably fit in a lot better with the Pharisees back in the day than not. But Definitely. Um, Sometimes I feel like we have traded, and I don't think Lori's doing this. It's just no. something I've been wrestling with. Sometimes I feel like we have traded mental assent. Mm-hmm. I check the right boxes on the right things in orthodoxy, doctrine, etc. Therefore, I'm a Christian mm-hmm. rather than... Union with Jesus That's fair. through the Holy Spirit. Now, Scripture does say you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. You believe in your heart. God raised him from the dead. You'll be saved. So there is an aspect of belief that mm-hmm. matters. And I'm not, I mean, look, I love education. Yep. I love doctrine theology. So I am very interested in people believing right things about Jesus, period. But I sometimes wonder if we've conflated the two in a way that... It's good. I don't know. I, that's not Greg Laurie's point. I'm just, it's something that's been on my mind. Lately. I think... <laughs> The list of things, and this is not exhaustive, but that you need to believe in order to even be considered, quote unquote, born again, I would say center on Jesus. Mm-hmm. Do I believe that Jesus is Lord? Yeah. Do I believe he's the long awaited Messiah? Do Is that where my hope lies? Yeah. Have I given my life to Jesus? Yeah. And I don't just mean the language of have I accepted him into my heart, but right. like, am I... Am I a new person born again? Right. That's right. I think we add a lot of other things yeah. to it. Do I believe... This and this yeah. and this and this. But some of these, do I believe that Jesus sinned or that people can get to heaven without Jesus? Those are pretty fundamental to they, who Jesus is and what true. he's come they to are. do. They definitely are. They're pretty important. Good words there from Greg mm-hmm. Laurie. Coming up next, we're going to be joined by an author by the name of Michael Graham. He's a program director for the Keller Center for Cultural Apologetics and also the co-author of the new book, The Great Dechurching. Who's leaving? Why are they going? And what will it take to bring them back? We're going to talk to Michael Graham next year on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Aubrey, something we talk about so often on this show uh, is uh, de-churching, mm-hmm. deconstruction, yep. people leaving the church. Yep. And there is a fascinating new book that just came out last week called The Great Dechurching: Who's Leaving? Why Are They Going? And What Will It Take to Bring Them Back? We have with us one of the authors of that, Michael Graham. Michael, how are you doing today? Great. Thank you so much for having us, Brian and Aubrey. Yeah, it's wonderful to have you with us. And Michael, here's the question. Uh, help people understand the landscape of what you see going on out there that caused you to write this book. Yeah, so Jim Davis, uh, my fellow author, and I were both pastors um, here in Orlando, Florida. Mm. And we we had read some anecdotal data that said about 40% of our city um, used to go to church and now didn't anymore. Oh wow! And so we felt like, okay, well, we need to know more about this. This was about five years ago. And so uh, we began to do a lot of research and there wasn't much out there in terms of recent data on those things. And we had, um, uh, we had a podcast called as in heaven, um, that we wanted to do an entire season on what was going on in dechurching. Mm. And basically we realized that if we're going to do a whole season on that, then we actually need to commission all new research on this. So we weren't originally going to write a book, but then what we learned from it was just so shocking and Mm. kind of earth shattering. And we're like, well, it would be irresponsible for us to just, you know, just leave this in the audio medium. So we probably need to actually write this up in a, in a book. So. Okay. So I, I mean, I I know you don't want to like give away all the incredible nuggets, but I am just as a, 
church leader, as a church goer, really curious about what some of the findings are. What were some of the things that were the most surprising for you and your co-authors? Yeah. So at the highest altitude, what you're talking about is one in six adult Americans used to go to church at least once a month, but now uh, less than once per year, basically. Oh, wow. Not at all. wow. So that's that's 40 million uh, U.S. adults. And almost all of those people left in the last 30 years um, kind of began originally with the mainline churches and then um, progressed to the Roman Catholic Church. And then evangelicals are playing dramatic catch up basically from the <laughs> mid 90s um, until about now. <laughs> evangelicals always a little late to the game. Um, but uh, <laughs> the uh, evangelical dechurching is about 15 million people. And then the mainline and Roman Catholic dechurching is about 20 million. Wow. So um, some of the more surprising things um, that we learned would be uh, there's definitely some misconceptions. So 30 of those 40 million people didn't leave with very negative experiences. Mm. Hmm. About 10 million left with really negative experiences. And I don't mean to, you know, diminish, undermine, or like say anything, you know, negative about, you know, those people. I mean, you know, there's some people who had some really, really horrible experiences. Sure, sure. So, but about three quarters of the people who left um, are what we call casually dechurched. Hmm. You know, they dechurched because um, the number one reason for overall is somebody moved. Mm. And basically, you know, anytime somebody has something in their life that, that messes with their rhythms and their habits, those are moments basically when people dechurch. So, mm. uh, some form of marital change, uh, a new child, COVID, um, all those kinds of uh, unemployment um, kind of you know, all those kind of life shifts yeah, wow. are kind of typically where, you know, three quarters of people are kind of taking that off ramp. You know, it's just their, their habits and rhythms change. Um, another thing that was really surprising is it's not really happening because of the secular university. So hmm. um, only, so only 3% of evangelicals who went to church, who grew up in church, who got graduate degrees end up de-churching. Okay. Wow. And, so th- that's dramatically less than the rest of the population. So now, now people are leaving. The most susceptible time that people are to leaving um, church are, is in the uh, 18 to 29-year-old mm. oh. And so, you know, I think, the, but I think it's a little bit of a misnomer that it's to, to say, you know, to tie that basically back to the secular university. Mm. Yeah. It doesn't look like it's, it's there in the data. Um, I think there's other things that are going on during that time of life and phase of life that's um, kind of contributing more to that. Right. right. Um, the uh, another thing that's surprising is the kind of beliefs of people who are uh, leaving, particularly among dechurched evangelicals. Um, of the dechurched evangelicals, I would say ten ten of the fifteen million who've left did not have a Nicene Creed level Christianity oh, wow. in terms of like an understanding of, you know, who Jesus was, the purpose of the, you know, the cross, the atonement, the resurrection, you know, reliability of the Bible, those different kinds of things. Um, but 5 million do seem to have a pretty deep understanding of the faith and who have left. And those people are really, th- those people are really interesting. Um, there's also massive differences on, so in the book, we, we outline five different profiles of different types of people who have left, um, houses of worship um, in America. And there's very wide ranging differences in demographics, reasons why people left willingness to return 
Hmm. and conditions under which people would be willing to return. Hmm. So I think a lot of the value proposition of, you know, the research that we've done here is to basically help clear the air. You know, if, if, if dechurching and all, of every, all the conversations that are around that are foggy, what we're trying to do is basically get out a, a really large uh, wind machine, yeah. clear the air, make, demystify everything, make it clear. And then so that people can say, oh, like Susie in my life, well, she looks a little bit like this profile, yeah. a little bit like this mm. profile. And so, you know, she needs a nudge from me or, yeah. Yeah. you know, Tommy, you know, Tommy needs to be at my dinner table, you know, mm. for, you know, for a while. And we, we got to have more of a relationship. Mm. And then, you know, and then, you know, somebody else who's probably, you know, we could be, I could be in their life for years, but they're probably still not going to return uh, just because of some of the things that they've seen and they, they've experienced. Yeah. So I think it helps to, you know, just yeah, kind of so give people some rails to run on and, and, and establish some expectations. That's interesting. Yeah, it is. Uh, yeah, that book, that book seems very necessary right now. Let me ask you this question. Uh, how much energy should churches and pastors be expending in trying to bring people back? Or, you know, obviously, if you have a family member or this night, you're going to be wanting to know and you're going to reach out. But, you know, there's a train of thought that says churches should worry about who's in the building uh, versus who's going out. What What is your kind of pastoral sense as to uh, how churches should deal with this kind of data? So, you know, one of the things that we want to do is we want to inspire both individuals and institutions to do better. A lot of that just happens to, to, to boil down to how we relate to people. And so I do think churches need to be just as concerned about their back door as they are about mm-hmm. their front door mm. and as they are about sending out the people who are there better equipped in their communities. Mm. And so we built a whole other website, um, dechurching.com, and we built a whole other basically ebook that's a lot shorter than this one specifically for local churches. It's got like a 20 point checklist and audit of things that you can do to help, um, you know, close the back door, open the front door and send out people better, better equipped in their context. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that resource is out there, but you know, if you're listening to this and you're a church leader, the number one thing that I want to, you know, just encourage you with and maybe just, you know, gently exhort you on is moving the most low hanging fruit that we can do is surrounding moving. It is an emergency when somebody is moving from, you know, you know, your community to a different community. The most important thing that you can do, whether that's for you're a ministry leader, you know, on the institutional side of things, or if you have a friend that's moving to a new place, help that person do some due diligence on finding a good, healthy local church mm, in gotcha. the community where they're moving. That's the, that's the number one thing that mm. anybody who's listening to this can do is just help people in that, in that process that they're moving and just follow up with them and, you know, see if, you know, yeah. see how that process is going, wow. you know, a couple, you know, a couple months after, you know, they're in a new community. Yeah. Oh, it's so good. The name of the book that we've been talking about with one of the authors, Michael Graham is the great deterching who's leaving Why are they going and what will it take to bring them back? Michael, where can our listeners find the book and where can they follow you? Uh, yeah, um, the best place you can you know find the book in terms of lots of inventory is obviously Amazon.com. Heard of it um, before. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, there's some additional resources, obviously, on thegreatdechurching.com, as well as institutional resources for local churches on dechurching.com. And you can find me on Twitter at the handle at MSG 
Right. So, awesome. like monosodium glutamate, right. <laughs> there, you go. there you go. Again, the book is called The Great Dechurching. Who's leaving? Why are they going? And what will it take to bring them back? Michael Graham, thanks for spending some time with us today. We appreciate it. Thank you, Brian. Thank you, Aubrey. Yep. You're listening to The Common Good, AM 1160. Hope for your life. We are thrilled to be joined by Jackie Brewster. She's a certified Enneagram coach, a certified experiential specialist, which I want to hear about what that is in just a minute, Jackie. She also co-authored Hearing God Speak, a 52-week devotional. She authored The Enneagram in Your Marriage. And there's a card deck, Enneagram Essentials. We're going to talk to her about emotional connection in our relationships and using the Enneagram to strengthen those as well. Jackie, thanks so much for being here today. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, we are so excited. So I told you off air that I I love the Enneagram. My husband, Kevin, and I were introduced to the Enneagram like 25 years ago, just out of college. And my co-host, Brian, still has not done it. He hasn't read a book. He hasn't taken a test. He hasn't. So I'm trying to get him to assess himself. But for our listeners who are like Brian, aren't necessarily familiar with the Enneagram, can you help um, them understand what it is and why it matters? Yes. So the Enneagram, it is a personality typing system. It helps you to really understand yourself better. Um, I love to use this tool as a, um, like a, a piece of curiosity, like why am I doing what I'm doing? So not necessarily a tool to tell you about yourself, but a tool that, that helps you understand yourself better. Mm. Um, so it's, it's like a snapshot about personalities. Why are you doing what you're doing? And I care about the motivation, not so much the behavior. And that's what the Enneagram uh, really focuses on. What's below the behavior? Oh, why are you doing it? Jack, yeah. Jackie, let's get to the to the craziest parts that people say. Every now and then you'll read on Twitter or whatever, Christians who think the Enneagram is uh, is not just not for them, but it's like it's bad or it's even yeah. I've read where it's satanic or it's this or that. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you say to those people? Uh, I say, well, I don't agree. <laughs> you know, I think <laughs> I've done a lot of my own work and I am a Christian and I care a lot about doing the right thing. And so I had to really um, dig into some of those places and, and make sure that I wasn't involving myself in something that I felt like was not appropriate, was not right, was evil or whatever. And that's just not the case. Yeah. The more you dig into it, um, the more you realize this is about patterns of behavior. It's it's overlaid with psychology, the way that we teach it today. Um, and it's just not, it does not have satanic roots or anything yeah. like that. It's not mystical yeah. or anything like that. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. think that's usually my response is like, actually, just try it. I promise you, you'll realize right. like God will use this tool in your life. Okay. But let's dive in yeah. a little bit, Jackie. Mm-hmm. I want to talk about how we can use the Enneagram to strengthen relationships. So I'm a four. I'm married to a seven. Oftentimes in our marriage, like we'll say to each other, I'm like, I'll, I'll say I'm just having a very four moment right now. And he'll, he understands that he'll go, OK, I'm just feeling very seven right now. And I understand that like that's given us a common language to have compassion for one another and maybe some of our harder marriage moments. How have you right. seen the Enneagram help strengthen other relationships? Yeah, so I love to use the the Enneagram as a tool inside of relationships because it does help you grow in empathy and compassion for yourself first and then also for others as you begin to see that not everybody sees the world through your specific lens. So we all have different motivations. We all have different ways of doing things and why we're doing them. And so this tool helps us to see other people in that way. We can hold space for people in such a different way when we understand not everybody is going to do things the way that we do them. Mm. 
Jackie, whenever it comes to any of these tests, right, Myers-Briggs or Enneagram or whatever else it might be, um, the danger, speak to this danger. You probably hear this a lot from people. Aren't we just putting people into a box? Aren't we just mm-hmm. defining them? Aren't they more than this? How would, I, I love yeah. to, someone who's invested so much time in it. I'd rather you answer that than me try to guess. Mm-hmm. How would you say to people about, you know, there's some danger in just putting people in a box? I love this question, and and I want to challenge this question because with this particular typing system, the Enneagram, it's different than other typing systems because the Enneagram gives you a growth track. It says, hey, you're kind of showing up like this. Mm -hmm. Get curious as to why, but Mm -hmm. you don't have to stay this way. So the Enneagram doesn't put you in a box, but it does expose the box that you have put yourself in Mm -hmm. by using patterns of behavior throughout your life to get your needs met, to get love, and to keep yourself safe. Oh, it's so good. Okay, Jackie. So let's go back to using the Enneagram to strengthen relationships. If you're, if you're like thinking of our listeners who are in some relationship, I don't know, conflict, mm-hmm. and they've never dived into the Enneagram before, but they want to begin using it as a tool, like what's a starting place for them? So. I have it. My newest book is The Enneagram in Your Marriage, and it is about relationships. And so a book like that would be great. Um, It's just curiosity around, like, what is going on behind the surface, right? Mm. So what is the core fear? Uh, Why are these people getting tripped up or what is happening? So each Enneagram number or each Enneagram type has a specific unconscious childhood messaging and also a specific heart longing message. And when we're talking about conflict and relationships, we're usually pressing against one of those messages, whether it's the losing message or this desire, like this is what I really need. And so depending on your personality type, you're going to move towards trying to get the need that or you're going to move away from people afraid of getting hurt. So you're just not going to, you know, you're going to. Uh, dismiss the need maybe even, Mm. or you stand independently and push against anything. And like, I can do this all by myself. I'm not going to let myself be in a vulnerable place. So the tool of the Enneagram, it really does break down the dance that we do inside of relationships. And so the book, the Enneagram in your marriage breaks it down in over seven weeks, step-by-step and side-by-side with different um, uh, modalities, different tools Mm. to help you do that. But there's some other great resources. You know, social media has a lot of great accounts. uh, And there's some other great relationship books, you know, written by great Enneagram teachers as well. So for somebody like me who's never taken, obviously Aubrey knows the answer to this question, but someone like me who's never done it or someone else listening out there, how does it actually work? Is this just a multiple choice thing you fill out? Is it a lot of questions that kind of say, what is your preference? Walk people through what this even looks and maybe where they could actually go do this. Okay. So there's two different approaches. There is a, um, you know, the traditional approach where you're going to take a test and you're going to answer all these questions and it's going to give you your results. And so, and I like to use that oftentimes that is a great starting point because it gives us some place to jump off. Like, where are we in this process? Um, But you have to remember when you're taking any type of personality test at all, they're only about 75% accurate Mm. because it's not a blood test. Yeah. <laughs> so they're only as, as accurate as you're willing to be honest um, or as you're willing or, you know, as aware you of you, I'm sorry, as aware of yourself yes. yeah. that you are That's when good. you're answering the question. Okay. So it's a great starting point to take a test and then to, to remain curious, like, is this true? So don't take it and like, well, this is what it says I am. So now I'm going to act in these ways or I'm going to mm. only 
these behaviors. No, that's not the purpose of this tool. The purpose of the tool is to say like, huh, let me see, is this true about me? Where did these come from? Let me dig into that. So there's that approach. And then there's also another approach, which is the more narrative approach, which is you just read and read and read about online types and really see what resonates with you. And so when we're talking about Enneagram work, there should be two feelings. It should be like, I feel seen and I also feel exposed. Totally. That is such a good, I remember that first realizing that I was a four, I was like, this is my secret inner life. Like people, someone knows about it. You know, that was, that was a really wild and God used that in powerful ways, actually. Yes. Um, Yeah. I feel the same way. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It it just, it kind of shows your, like your shadow side. And like you said, where you need to grow the gifts that you bring to the table, but also like Mm -hmm. what redemptive work does the Lord want to do? Okay. The name of your book is the Enneagram in your marriage, a seven week Mm -hmm. guide to better understanding and loving your spouse. Where Mm -hmm. can our listeners find the book? Is this for individual couples? Is this for groups? Like, um, tell us a little bit about it and where they can find it. Okay. So the, the book is for couples. I've had people say like, Hey, I'm going to get the book and do it. I'm not in a relationship right now, but I want to learn. So people have used it that way as well. Um, and it can be done in a group as well. So there is some group work being done with this book. Um, you can buy this book anywhere books are sold. Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Books A Million, um, Christian retailers, really anywhere books are sold. Yep. Fantastic. You can find and follow Jackie Brewster at Enneagram with JB. Jackie Brewster is a certified Enneagram coach, a certified experiential specialist. She co-authored Hearing God Speak, which is a 52-week devotional and book we've been talking about, The Enneagram and Your Marriage. Jackie, thanks so much for being here with us today. Thank you so much for having me. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. It's the end of the show, and I don't want to forget to mention something that's happening this weekend. The Naperville JC's Last Fling is back. It's September 1st through September 4th. You can enjoy the last days of summer in downtown Naperville with carnival rides, live music, and food vendors. Admission is free. You can find out more at lastfling.org. All right, Brian, uh, we are having later on this week on the show, author Caitlin Shesh, I believe. Is that is how how said? You, we've had her on the show before, and right. I'm pretty sure it rhymes with chess. I sort okay. of remember we will that. ask her when she comes yeah, on. Yeah, um, she's an author of several books, but an, her latest one is called The Ballot and the Bible, How Scripture Has Been Used and Abused and Where We Go From Here. She's a doctoral student in political theo- theology at uh, Duke University. But she wrote something for Christianity Today that I thought was kind of interesting. She's talking about the GOP debate last week. And um, she she said this, that um, one of the things referenced by Fox News host Martha McCallum was this um, phrase that President Reagan used mm-hmm. when he called America the shining city on a hill, a beacon of hope and optimism. Martha McCallum said in your closing statement tonight, please tell American voters why you are the person who can inspire this nation to a better day. She goes on, Caitlin, to talk about some of the responses there. But it's interesting because she um, points out that while Ronald Reagan transformed City on a Hill into one of the most familiar lines mm-hmm. in the liturgy of the American civil religion, this is a phrase not like 
coined by Ronald Reagan, no, no, right? No, 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 no. Right. Is, uh, a phrase Matthew coined five. by Jesus himself. You are a city on a hill. You are the light of the world. Um, so what Caitlin, I think, is getting at ultimately is not necessarily that we should take the Bible out of our public lives. But when we take things from Scripture and put them into our politics, that's some of that mixing that we've talked about quite a bit on the show of the Christian faith, Christian nationalism and maybe even uh, humanizing, making secular Jesus's words. Mm. Thoughts? I think it's uh, it's a really important topic. Yeah. Because, you know, was Ronald Reagan trying to say something biblical? May or may not have been, maybe, but he was taking not. biblical yeah. phrases. And, the, and the, the danger is that it now brings... A, an interpretation of that phrase to mean America is this yeah, or yeah, whatever else. Yeah. And it becomes, you know, and it becomes normalized. What's a city on a hill? Oh, that's when America is shining its brightest. Right, and right. I like when you read Ronald Reagan's speech, you're like, that's a great that speech. That is inspiring. Yes. Go for it. Yes. We want to be on a city on a hill. Yes. But we have to be careful when we're taking for political purposes, um, biblical phrases that then people go, Oh, okay. And they start to get confused a little bit. Like, you know, Jesus was telling the church to be shining something in particular, Mm -hmm. right? Like when he called the city on a hill, this had, or to be a light, right. To be a light. He was talking about something different than, Hey, hopefully your nation is like leading the way towards prosperity. Right. Caitlin says our misuse of city on a hill is representative of a common failure failure to interpret the Bible for our political lives. When a verse exhorting the people of God to faithfully serve the world gets twisted into a defense of American dominance. She said, even our genuine efforts to let scripture inform our political lives can easily become props for whatever political positions we already hold. Mm. She also goes on to say biblical references like those invoked on Wednesday night. That was, she's referencing the GOP debate. She says, Um, This will not certainly be the last as the election season draws near. The first debate demonstrates what happens when biblical references are shorn of their context and leveraged to lend moral weight to our political projects. This should remind Christians to interrogate the biblical languages and images used in our public square. Scripture is not free-floating language available for any political project or timeless truth that can be wrenched from its context When we treat it as such, we lose sight of its intended purpose. Here's Mm. the question, I think, ultimately. Why does this matter? Because we want to hold scripture as different and higher. It's the same talk we have, generally speaking, with the quote-unquote Christian nationalism. It's what's the purpose of scripture? What's the purpose of faith? Would any of us argue with the fact that we wouldn't like to see America more Christian? That'd be wonderful. Sure. Like, hopefully that would be very beneficial for us as a society. Yep, yep. But is that ultimately our goal and or what scripture is pointing to? I would suggest not. And so we want to be very vigilant at not allowing either side of the aisle to uh, to take as its own biblical imagery. Mm. Right. We don't want to call a a certain um, candidate a messiah. 
or a savior. Yes. We've heard that we on both sides of the aisle yep. within the last 20 years yeah. with both sides of the yeah, aisle, we right? Have. We don't want to even, we don't want to do that um, because we, geez, we, we have to hold these things as different. We have to remember that if America falters and goes away, it doesn't take with it Christianity. It doesn't take with it Jesus. Yeah. I don't want America to go away. Right. I love to live here. Right. I like it. But uh, but that's where it becomes important. And so it could be thought that you're overthinking it a little bit. But, you know, if if this is. If if we're holding these words of Scripture to to define and describe Jesus and the church. Yeah. Then to use it in a speech or a debate really just starts to cheapen it and it confuses it. Yeah. And I think this is like m- maybe part of, you know, you've we've kind of talked about before. It seems like politicians will pander to the evangelical voting block by throwing out things about Jesus or mm-hmm. things about God or they'll say they're Christians or they'll throw biblical phrases out. And I I just think this is a good word for all of us to be aware be mindful. Yes. Don't always buy it. Be like a little bit. I, a cynical may not be right. Be critical yeah. in your thinking to decide, is this authentic? And maybe it is in some cases, or is this actually um, something a little yucky for lack of a better word, <laughs> yes. toxic kind of mixing up and pandering to the Christian voter while not actually thinking seriously about the words of Jesus. And, and I would love to know, I would have, lo- obviously it's not a, it's not a religion exam. So that wasn't going to happen, right. but I, I would have loved for her, the, the, the moderator to be like, I would love to know if the men and women on that stage know where city on a hill even comes from. Yeah, That'd be interesting to even ask. And they might be like, Oh, Ronald Reagan came up with it. Well, he, he, he did. Use it. Yeah. And again, there's nothing wrong with what Reagan said or these totally. guys said. We just want to hold scripture as different. We want to hold the terminology we use as as different. Yeah. We'll have to talk with Caitlin about this a little bit more tomorrow when she's on the show with us. Well, hey, Brian and I will be back again tomorrow from 4 to 6 p.m. For Brian Fromm, I'm Aubrey Sampson, and you've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person person for donald trump to hire i find out the worst enemy that i'm going to face in my life is right here in america they took my assessment and they wanted me to change it i was like i'm not changing it they had to get rid of flint with in-depth interviews archival footage and never before seen personal record to the man behind the headlines i just felt like i was drowning flynn deliver the truth whatever the cost available now watch it today go to salemnow.com salemnow.com